Welcome to Artful Conversations, a podcast about arts and cultural management. I'm Anita Latham. And I'm Katrina Ingram. We interview leaders who help shape the world of arts and culture, sharing their stories, insights, and observations. Welcome to Artful Conversations. I'm your host, Anita Latham. Today I'm joined by Miranda Jimmy, Edmontonian and member of Thunderchild First Nations. Miranda is currently with the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, where she serves as an Indigenous Arts Development Consultant. She's also co-founder of RISE, which stands for Reconciliation and Consolidarity Edmonton, and was one of Avenue's 2016 Top 40 Under 40. She's has worked both in not-for-profit and the public sector and is known for her contributions to building and creating community and advocating for the Indigenous voice. And she's taken courses in the Grant McEwen Arts and Cultural Programme. Welcome, Miranda. Thanks. Uh, Miranda, can you tell us more about your personal journey and how you've come to the work you're doing now? Well, I've always been uh, involved in the community in, in a variety of ways. Growing up, I volunteered and was involved with Girl Guides and um, kind of community connections and activism. And so that's always been a part of who I am. Uh, so when I moved to Edmonton uh, to come to school, yeah, um, I didn't know anybody. And the way I got to know people was getting involved in the community and volunteering. And it was actually through my volunteer work um, in the arts that led me to the Arts and Cultural Management Program. Um, and I, I would say that one thing that I saw disconnected or misrepresented was Indigenous voices throughout that. Yes. And specifically, this kind of um, siloing or separation of Indigenous culture and tradition and practice separate from more fine arts and um, cultural practices that we see, see as mainstream. Yeah. And so I, I thought that was interesting that there was this separate, separ- uh, was the separation and segregation. And um, I saw an opportunity to build those bridges. And this was, you know, uh, 15 years ago. Wow, what a wonderful um, journey. And I think, you know, I think it's fantastic that you kind of saw saw something and are responding to it. I think that's really exciting. And um, and you recently ran for the city council in the 2017 elections. Well done. Thanks. Uh, that's a very courageous thing <laughs> to do. Um, tell us about that experience. Well, again, through my community uh, work, I've always seen myself as as political, probably small p political. Yeah. Um, using my voice to um, uh, advocate for and create the change that I see needed in my community, and so I just saw an opportunity with city council to to take that position further. And really, city council is the one place where we're supposed to be nonpartisan, and it's about the community voice and really the opportunity for individuals to. Um, create change, long-term change through policy and planning in our city. And so I, I saw a need for, for more community voices around the table, specifically Indigenous voices and yes. more women voices as well. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a very courageous thing to do. <laughs> I think you're a braver woman than I am. <laughs> Um, in relation to project management, which, you know, I'm sure you had to do a lot of project management in, re- in relation to running for the election. Let's talk about a project that you did a few years ago that was hashtag um, reconciling yik. Um, can you give our listeners a quick summary of what that project was and how you built and established a plan for the project? 
Well, Reconciling Edmonton started um, as we approached the closing of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The um, 94 calls to action had been released and the final report was was to come. And um, me and a few people in the community recognized that this was an opportunity to really challenge people to think about this idea of reconciliation and not put the onus on the TRC. Yeah. This idea of reconciliation started before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission existed and needed to continue after. And so that was kind of the root of the idea. Um, so the project was based in archival record. We wanted to go through the records um through the archives at the city archives and the provincial archives to find examples of reconciliation from the signing of treaty to present day. Yes. Um, and give the community an opportunity to think about and respond to that. And so um, I was part of the the team that led it. There were two uh, Indigenous women and yeah. two settler women yeah. uh, bringing together our different perspectives and unique skills to kind of bring the project together. Um, so I think it was really from the from the core, it was about how do you represent the idea of reconciliation through the way that you work. Yes. So um, from from the very sense of the idea, how are we going to indigenize processes? Are we going to include indigenous voices at the same level as settler voices? Are we going to make sure that there's um, space and resources dedicated to allowing all different perspectives on the topic to be included and continue to evolve the conversation. We didn't want it to be from the from the start to the end of the project. We didn't want the conversation to end. Yeah. And so those were all the premises that we kind of started with. Yeah. And um, so thinking about the project management perspective, it was really about what is the end result we want to achieve and how do we think about that from the very seed of the idea throughout the process and, and make sure that it continues after after the project is done. Fantastic. And how long did the project go for? Um, it, uh, all in all, it was only about six months uh, yeah. from the time that we got the original seed grant of $2,500 yes. um, to uh, the unveiling event that took place um, in November of 2015. Fantastic. And... Um, it was great to hear you talking about, you know, thinking about how you're going to evaluate things right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, great for me to hear that because that's what I tell my students all the time. <laughs> I say you begin at the end. Yeah. Um, so what measurements did you use then to assess the project's impact? Um, probably more um, qualitative than quantitative. Yes. Yeah. Um, when uh, this was one of the one of the first projects that RISE was involved in after we founded. And um, when I first kind of initiated the conversation around RISE, a lot of Indigenous people said, no thanks. Yeah. Reconciliation is not my work to do. Um, the settlers have the work to do. And once they've done a little bit more work, then I'm ready to join the conversation. Yeah. And that was something I heard overwhelmingly from many of my Indigenous friends and, and community members. And um, that was in early 2015. And so part of the challenge from the beginning with this particular project was how do we get more Indigenous voices to the table? Yeah. Um, and I think we needed um, we needed to prove to people that um, there were settlers that were committed to the cause of reconciliation, people willing to do the hard work, um, challenge their own biases and and deepen their understanding. And once that took place, then more indigenous people would feel um, 
courageous enough to come back to the table. And so one of the amazing things that took place is, like I said, in early 2015, we had very few Indigenous voices involved with RISE. Um, But by the end of November, when we held the unveiling event for this at City Hall, um, visibly in the audience, there was a 50-50 percentage. And that was just, it, it, Thinking about it now, the images in my mind, that's that's what um, success looked like to me. Fantastic. So when you think about what success now looks like for you, I think I think that's a really good phrase of how when we do something, because sometimes it changes as a project goes through its life and, you know, what we think it might have, what we wanted, often it can change and grow and evolve. So in relation to that, what did you learn from the project? Like what was your take home? Yeah, I think um, really challenging myself and my colleagues to indigenize process. I think yeah. that was, and, and again, remembering that end result. Yes, projects change and shift and um, ideas and changes come to the table throughout it. And that's okay. And that's part of the learning process. And you learn to where, uh, you learn to figure out where you want to bend and shift and where you want to stay true to that original original idea. And if you think about, for us, that checkpoint was always the end goal of what do we want to accomplish? What do we want to say? And um, some of the challenges through that is we, um, it, the project became bigger than we imagined, <laughs> which is a good, good yeah. project, a good problem to have. Yeah, um, and so that, that um, changed the scale, that changed the budget, that changed um, the amount of partners and outside involvement we right. needed. Um, and that created challenges within itself of how are we going to, you know, um, keep a rein on the monster that was <laughs> yes. developing. Um, all of those are good things and actually um, added to the value of the end result, knowing that there were um, there was more support and more people behind us than we had originally planned for. That, that's great. And when you created a project using collaborative artistic mediums, um, that had an exhibition recognition at the acknowledgement at the end um, and really shared responses mm-hmm. about reconciliation and using arts as a way to speak into that as, a, as part of the healing. Um, why do you think it's so important that arts and culture continues to play a role in presenting projects like this? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think we always need to challenge our norms and understanding. Um, So what was taught a generation ago or what was considered art a generation ago is constantly shifting and changing, and I think we need to adapt to that. Yes. Um, Also thinking about who had the right or place to create art has changed changed in a generation and so we need to constantly thinking think about that whose voices and perspectives are included and represented in the the art that we choose to involve ourselves with that we choose to support that we choose to generate and um, I think that that is a constant push that we need to be involved in and I think probably the arts out of all the sectors is more adaptive to that thought process yes Um, but there are also um colonial structures that exist specifically in the fine arts that um, aren't so easy to change. Yes, yes. We were fortunate enough to interview Simone Bro, and uh, he talked about from Canada Council for the Arts and he talked about, you know, the, the changes that they are hoping to put in place to support 
um, Indigenous artists. And I think it's really exciting hearing what you're saying as well because it kind of really reinforces that new direction, which I think is really exciting. Um, and, and so let's move on to talk about RISE, which mm-hmm. I think is a really interesting thing. I've, I've read a little bit about it and I, I think it, it's an absolutely amazing organisation you've put together and you're the co-founder mm-hmm. um, of RISE. And can you explain what this organisation is and what it does and why you felt it was needed? Well, for me, it's been a combination of um, my learning and my journey as an adult. Um, so I would say for me personally, it starts in grade 11. Yeah. Um, in grade 11 social studies, my social studies teacher, um, who happened to be Japanese, talked about um, the Japanese internment camps right. and his uh, his family's connection to that. And he made a statement saying, this is the second worst thing the Canadian government ever did. So someone asked, well, what was the first? And he said, well, residential schools. Right. That wasn't in the curriculum. It was never mentioned again. I didn't know what he was talking about. I also didn't know for me personally that I had already been suffering the intergenerational effects of residential school. I grew up in poverty. Um, My dad's first language was Cree, but he never spoke a word to us. Um, We didn't have any connection to our community or our culture or even most of my extended family. And I grew up in a house filled with violence and and addictions and mental health issues. And all of those were a result of this system that I knew nothing about. Yeah. Um, So as an adult, I I started on a journey of understanding this and learning for myself. And um, that's where, again, I saw that that disconnect between Indigenous people and perspectives being segregated from others. And I thought, this isn't isn't right. Um, Systems were put in place to make sure that I didn't have access to that. And so what can I do to change that or build the bridge? And you start by learning. You start by asking questions. And you start by connecting with people who have knowledge. And so... For me, that started with um, connecting with elders and with the Indigenous community and hearing people's stories uh, and experiences of residential school. Um, I was involved prior to the settlement agreement being signed in 2008 um, and have had an amazing opportunity over the last um, 10 years to hear hundreds of firsthand stories and testimony from survivors. And in in March of 2014, Edmonton hosted the seventh and final national event of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And this was the first time for me that I heard residential school talked about in mainstream media, right. where people were, you know, it was on the front page of the, the newspaper, it was the top story on the news, and a light bulb went off for me of there's no more excuses saying I didn't know. You have your head buried in the sand and you don't listen to any mainstream media, then maybe you have that excuse. Um, It was also the first time at that um, event that I gave um, my testimony as an intergenerational survivor and talked about my experience. I think it's important that we put a a present day face to this this story and and, um, the impacts that it's had. And it also was a kind of a, a, uh, a phase in my healing journey to say that my story has value and that I have a voice that can actually create change for the community by using it. Um, yeah. If I remain silent and only talk to Indigenous people, I'm not doing um, 
a favor to anyone else and no one has an opportunity to learn. And I had that opportunity to learn and I need to pass that on to others. So after the TRC was in town, um, over the year that followed, there were many conversations on social media, um, people asking questions really from a place of wanting to learn. I didn't know this. Where can I learn more? Um, I've always had a prejudice against Indigenous people that I see homeless on the streets, um, I, you know, I feel guilty. I feel shame. What do I do with that? Yes. Um, I don't. I don't know um, enough about my own family's history. All of these questions were popping up, and I thought people were really brave to ask the questions, yeah. and so they deserved a response. And so I started answering questions from complete strangers on social media. I started pointing people to resources. I started calling people on comments that were off color or racist or stereotypical, and saying that's not right. Yes. Um, and I felt like I was empowered to do that, where I didn't feel like I had that before. So as a year progressed after um, after the TRC event here in Edmonton, um, the one year anniversary was approaching, and I was expecting I'd, I'd been involved in so many conversations over that year, um, amazing conversations and, and amazing learnings and new friendships. And I thought a year later there's going to be something. There's going to be some big government announcement. There's going to be a monument. There's yeah. going to be a new program. There's going to be something. Um, a year of talking is enough. Um, and I waited and I waited and nothing was happening. And then a couple weeks, um, before the anniversary, I heard about a small gathering that was taking place in Churchill Square to honor the first, uh, anniversary of the first day of the, the TRC event here in Edmonton. So I showed up and there were about a hundred people, um, we gathered in a circle, um, an elder sang a round dance song. We danced for about 15 minutes and everyone left and I thought, this is it. <laughs> this is what I waited a year for. Yeah. Um, a year later, only 100 people in our city care enough to show up for 15 minutes. Like I was, I actually got more and more angry. Yeah. And I went home that night going, what, what is going on? I don't, I don't get it. Like why, why did I, why did seven other thousand people give testimony if a year later it doesn't even matter? Yeah. And, um, so I went to bed really angry that night, and the next morning I got up, and um, my anger had subsided a little bit, and I thought, well, no, nothing's being done. I need to do something. Um, this is this is not right. So I sent an email to about 50 people who I'd had conversations with over the previous year, some of which I'd never met in person, yeah. and said... Um, you know, two days from now is March 30th. It's one year since I gave my testimony. I have a DVD copy of my testimony I haven't watched. You're invited to my house. We're going to watch it together and we're going to talk about it. And almost every single person responded. Um, most couldn't come on two days notice. And thank goodness, because my living room doesn't fit 50 <laughs> people. Um, but there were six of us gathered that night yeah. and um, we watched my video and we talked about what is our responsibility. So if the city's not doing something, the government's not doing something, there's not this major shift a year later. We are individuals that have influence and can create change. So what does that mean and what are we going to do? So a few weeks later, we organized a larger meeting, giving people some notice. And um, we had that same conversation in circle um, with about 35 people. And that was the start of RISE. Oh, wow. I mean, I think it's, for me, it's really exciting to hear that as a new Canadian. Mm. Um, it's, it's exciting to hear that 
you as a collective group kind of have found your voice are mm-hmm. fi- and are finding your voice and, and really s- seeing where your voice fits in the dialogue that's mm-hmm. out there. Um, you know, with the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, and like you said before, it's uh, 94 calls to action, how how do you, do you personally feel about that and how does that kind of fit into RISE's message that it's trying to get out there? Well, the challenge with the 94 calls to action really, um, you know, to to quote um, Murray Sinclair, he said, you know, we've, we've shown you the mountain, um, we've shown you the pathway to the top, and we call on you to do the climbing. Yeah. So the 94 calls to action are the path. That's the route that you need to take. Um, if, if Canada actually completed all 94 calls to action, our society would be different. The challenge with the 94 calls to action is they are they are directed to um, orders of government. They are directed to the business community. They are directed to the not-for-profit sector, yes. the, biz- the business sector, the post-secondary sector. There is no call to action saying, I call on Annetta to do this, or, or I, I call on Miranda to do this. Yes. Um, and so... I've heard two sides of that. I've heard people say, well, there's no call to action for me as an individual, therefore I have no role in reconciliation. And then others who say, I want to do something, I don't know how to translate this into something for me. And so that that right there is the work of RISE. How do we um, translate this work of seven years of collecting testimony and collecting documents and telling uh a more wholesome truth of our history into a way of what can I do? Yeah. And that is the work of RISE. Yeah. So in relation to um, truth and reconciliation, through your work with Indian Residential Schools, Resolution Canada, um, you read hundreds of stories Mm -hmm. uh, of residential school survivors. What was that experience like for you as an intergenerational survivor of residential schools? Well, again, when my work started in that, I wasn't, I, I didn't know my family's connection to it. I didn't really understand. And um, the more stories I heard, the more commonalities I saw. Yeah. And um, I realized that it didn't really matter what school you went to, what province you were in, even how old you were, the experience and the effect it had on your life was similar across all of those. And through that, I started to understand my dad more. I started to understand his experience, why he did certain things, how he was a parent to me, how he is today. And um, things started to make sense. And for me, that was um, a piece of my own puzzle and my own understanding of who I am and where I come from. Um, Through that, you hear amazing stories of resilience and um, overcoming hardship and and challenges. Um, there are stories of laughter and um, and fun um, and extreme extreme um, challenges of abuse and mental health and addictions and and poor ways of dealing with the 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 baggage that come from that experience. And so all of that was an amazing learning opportunity for me to understand myself better, but also to understand my community better. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's the gift of the, of the TRC to all Canadians is to challenge those, again, talking about that homeless person in downtown Edmonton, 
what experience brought them to that situation. Yes. Um, and understanding that deals with the root causes, not just the situation of homelessness. Yeah. Fantastic. And the calls to actions that we've talked about that were the outcome of uh, the TRC, the use of language and culture mm-hmm. are presented in a way that's really intertwined. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about the preservation and revitalization of Aboriginal languages and how that plays a role in culture? Well, I think really one of the basis for the calls to action is the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, which Canada was one of the last countries to adopt. Yeah. And we still haven't actually seen the full impact of what that will be for our country. Um, the The residential schools system was a system of assimilation and um, a product of colonization. And through that um, that whole process of assimilation, many languages, traditions, and cultures were lost. And there is an opportunity, and I think there's more of a recognition now from, from younger generations of Indigenous people in our country to say, this is important. This yes. is um, important to capture and... Um, promote before those languages are lost by people passing away. And um, every every day, every year, more and more elders from Indigenous communities across the country are lost. And with that language, culture, traditions, knowledge is lost. And so um, there's an urgency to this. And I think in the last decade or so, Indigenous communities amongst themselves have recognized the importance of this and have invested time and energy and resources into um, revitalizing language and tradition because the loss is going to be felt for the next um thousands of years and so um, with the TRC and with uh, the UN declaration there's now more um, broad urgency I guess to the cause and I think that there's opportunities now for for governments and other funders to um, support that so it's not left to the communities to do that themselves. So how do you see the role of uh, an arts manager um, within the TRC in relation to the creation and presentation of traditional and um, contemporary art forms, Indigenous art forms? Well, something that's interesting is that you see, again, even within within governments or within funders, you see that separation of art is this, culture is this, heritage is this. And I think from an Indigenous worldview, they all are coming from the same pot. Yeah. And I think that's going to be the challenge going forward is how do government agencies and ministries work together across those silos, because that's going to provide the best services and supports for individuals from the Indigenous community. Um, and so I think that that's going to be the challenge going forward. And again, it's about indigenizing the way we do things yeah. to provide the best service possible. Yeah. And it's not about what's um, what fits within the box. It's about um, breaking down the box and making sure that it's actually about that end result and the best service. Yeah, fantastic. Um <clears throat> There's also a specific section uh, around museums and archives uh, with the call to undertake a review of the Canadian museum's policy and best practice in order to determine a level of compliance with the United Nations Declaration for Rights for Indigenous People that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, what outcomes would you like to see happening in terms 
of the way Indigenous history is represented, including the bigger picture of Canadian history, and how um, do you feel our museums can take part in that? Well, that's a really big question. I think yeah. um, you we can break it down. <laughs> no, I think um, museums and archives and and um, even fine art institutions are. Um, colonial institutions. They're based on this idea that um, settlers are the experts. We know how to take care of your stuff and we'll do the best job um, of taking care of your stuff. And our our responsibility of stewarding that is more important than your involvement. Yeah, That's really the basis of it. And so that needs to be challenged. That That notion of what they are there to do needs to be challenged. And we're seeing that here in Alberta, conversations around repatriation and around, um, you know, we're, uh, just down the street, we're building a new museum. And um, compared to the previous museum that was built um, in 67, yeah. the world has changed in that time. How we approach um, collection and interpretation has changed, and it continues. It needs to continue to evolve because I hope that the way we're doing things now will not be the same in a generation. Um, so I think that recognizing that this, those spaces and standards need to be able to shift, I think that's really the key. Yeah, and it's it's one of those interesting things. I, as a New Zealander, yeah, I know that we have gone through the a similar thing about repatriating our um, our Indigenous communities uh, and their their artworks and things that um, have sit inside other museums around the world mm -hmm. and um, definitely first explorers right. took some things home with them. Yeah. Um, and that thing of bringing it back, mm -hmm. bringing it back to its home, I think is a definitely an ongoing challenge around the world for First Nations communities and how you kind of navigate that, right. um, I think is a real challenge. Um, I think it's also, it's not just about um, artifacts and artwork, it's about human remains, yeah. it's about... Um, it's about how those things were obtained and collected um, and and when is that story ever going to be told? Yeah. I think that's the challenge. Yeah, very much so. Um, so in relation to all of that, how to how I think one of the challenges for us as arts managers and for our young arts managers coming out of our program is how do they, work to move things forward in order to progress the reconciliation in their day-to-day -day practice really mm -hmm. and in their organizations that they start to work in how do you feel you know what would be good things for them to consider and start thinking about it about how they move reconciliation forward well, uh, for me, I like to break down reconciliation into this simple form. Yeah. Um, so reconciliation is not about doing something. It's not about the checklist. It's not about completing the 94 calls to action. It's not about um, A, B, and C. Yeah. So reconciliation is not about doing something. It's about doing it differently. So um, in approaching this work, um, it is a field dominated by settlers. Yes. Um, and so... How can settlers do things differently? How can Indigenous voices be included in different ways? Um, there is has to be a recognition that there's um, a knowledge and, and management perspective that um, administrators can bring, but there's a knowledge and management perspective that Indigenous people can bring, and yes. those things need to be married together. Um, one's not more important than the other, 
but um, there hasn't been that space or inclusion. And that's what I think every day we have an opportunity in every conversation to to challenge that norm and to include voices that aren't at the table. And that will be that will mean the shift. Yeah, and I think that's a great way of putting it because it it means too as you develop in your career you not only include the indigenous voices but you start thinking about the other voices of mm-hmm. the new settlers sure um and you know when you think about immigration of people who have come from horrendous countries where there is war and still is war mm-hmm. um when you start like you say including a voice you mm-hmm. start thinking about that really across the broad of what who is in your community and who's made up of them and and you start thinking in a way that I think allows you to be more if if anything be more engaging and more creative and the response is really interesting because it ends up you've actually been you become a more interesting organization you know the more voices you listen to I think the more important it is and and I I certainly um like the way you talk about you know when you start including a voice that's not there uh not only do you empower that voice but you also empower yourself as an organization Mm -hmm. to to do and be a little different and um, it's a good place to be and I think as arts managers we're, that's our call we need to do and be a little different um, sure yeah doing the status quo I think is is old well I think um, from from the not pro, not-for-profit uh, sector the job of those organizations is to serve the communities they live yeah. in and those communities are changing they look different than they did a generation ago but oftentimes the people in leadership positions, that hasn't changed. And so we're actually doing a disservice to the public funds we receive if we're not representing and reflecting the community in which we exist. Yeah, yeah. So um, we, what I'd like to discuss is the challenge that the non-Indigenous community faces in trying to connect and learn about the Indigenous culture Um you know, there's a there seems to be apprehension um, surrounding not wanting to do the wrong thing, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and sometimes even an access point into an indigenous community uh, can be um, challenging yeah. for both individuals and for arts organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes in that challenge, there ends up being a lot of silence. Sure. Um, so, what do you think can happen to help change that situation? Well, I think the worst thing you can do is nothing. Yeah. Um, so even if you um, take a step forward and it's a misstep, hopefully you learn from that and um, you you learn knowledge, understanding from that experience and will do differently the next step. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is the most important lesson in all of this is to do something. So take a step forward, talk to someone new, go to an event you've never been to before, read a book you've never read before. Yeah. All of those are steps forward. And um, I would like to think with each of us taking those steps every single day and challenging ourselves to do that, a generation from now, our city, our country will look differently. Yeah. And um, what I'm worried about is that place of fear. Um, that place of fear that says, well, I know nothing. I don't even know where to start. 
guess what you do? I I just gave you five examples of that. Um, The challenge in all of this, though, is that we like things to be the same that they are. We We like things to be the same routine. We like to go to the same movies. We like to go to the same restaurants. We like to talk to our same group of friends. And all of this is out of our comfort zone and and requires us to personally change. Um, And that has to happen with intent. And so that is the personal responsibility of each of us in in this reconciliation journey is to be intentful about our actions. Yeah, and I think think the intent is a great phrase because... um, I don't think you can assume to understand a culture mm-hmm. um, and some of the challenge that people have is they want to understand an exclamation marks mm-hmm. the culture before they kind of engage and like you said the intent take some steps forwards do some things and mm-hmm. it's speaking into the vacuum into the silence mm-hmm. and because if we all start speaking into the silence it the silence disappears absolutely um, yeah. and we can't all and and that's where I really see the change and and the reconciliation happening when you speak into the silence. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it. I think you you've said it's a great thing. You know, go and see something different, do something different, go go to a festival you haven't seen and been to before. Go and volunteer at it. Um, yeah. put some energy into that and learn. Right, you know, go with an open mind and learn. Um, what do you see is the role? of individuals who are non-Indigenous mm-hmm. um, in communities and and in order to participate in changing that narrative and advocating for social change and inclusion. You know, how does a non-Indigenous person kind of navigate and support the voice of the Indigenous people in their communities? Listen, um, there's two really simple things is make space for those yes. voices to be heard. Yeah. Um, don't ever take responsibility to speak on anyone's behalf. Um, so it's 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 making space at the table, including those voices, um, getting those perspectives, um, not speaking on behalf of anyone, and then listening to what you hear. Um, so it's a really simple thing. You need to listen twice as much as you talk. Yeah. Um, and um, I think through all of that listening, you'll learn, you'll learn more about what you don't know. Um, and, and a path will become clearer, yeah. the process you need to follow. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, are there specific suggestions that you can offer to our students, arts managers and organisations that they can start doing now to build programming that is genuinely inclusive? Yeah, it's those same steps. It's about thinking about who's not at the table, thinking about the community in which you operate in and um, the makeup of that community and making sure that your programming and exhibitions is reflective of that community. It's not just reflective of the people that you know. Yeah. Um, and um, for for me to think about the um, public institutions here in Edmonton, that would drastically change their programming and their um, their plans for the future if they were actually reflective of, uh, of our city. Um, so the Indigenous roots and perspectives that are brought through those traditions, um, from the, the newcomers and the immigrants, from um, the, the gateway to the north that we are, all of those, yes. um, I don't see that reflected in the art that's presented in our city um, regularly. Yeah. And so um, that would be the challenge, I would say, that um, students and administrators now can bring forward. Yeah, and I think it, 
It is a challenge and mm. it, I think it is a challenge in how you, you know, how you navigate that through your funding bodies mm-hmm. and your boards mm-hmm. and your audience and how you, you know, engage an audience with something that they're a little bit uncomfortable with. And sure. Especially if you're an organisation that is very much ticket reliant mm-hmm. and sells tickets. And But I think the challenge for all of us is to is to actually meet that challenge mm-hmm. and embrace it and have a go and start being more inclusive as you've said uh, I think it's really really important and you know have you as you mentioned before it's just taking a step taking mm-hmm. a first step yep uh, taking a little step and um you know it's it's and listen listen and and give people the space to respond to what you're giving them. Give them a different narrative mm-hmm. and see what happens. You might be incredibly surprised. Right. And this change doesn't happen overnight. No. I wouldn't expect, you know, a, a, an institution to completely wipe their, their season and only present Indigenous voices. Yeah. That's not what it's about. It's about the balance. Yeah. And that change will happen over time by slowly including it and um, and. And I think out of all sectors, the arts is more most poised to do this, where we should be on the cutting edge and we yes. should be um, expanding ideas and perspectives and challenging people to think differently. And so what a great medium to do that in this particular cause. Yeah. And the arts, I think, uh, you're right, the arts is that kind of place where people go, oh, they did, they, it's, it's all right, they're in the arts. <laughs> <laughs> they did it. They're a little weird. They're, <laughs> Are in the arts, but you know it's it's kind of a license we almost need to embrace mm-hmm. and grab a hold of and kind of be a little bit cheeky with and just right. and if anything push the envelope because we are in the arts yeah and you know people who are uncomfortable with it can use that oh it's just the arts um, <laughs> but well, I think I think the cause of reconciliation if it doesn't make you uncomfortable you're doing it wrong yes so yeah, good point <laughs> yeah good point yeah you're right yeah I think that's a really good point so what's next for Miranda Jerry um, should we anticipate seeing you in the political arena again well, I can I can say I've never been accused of being quiet. Yeah. Um, I will continue to use my voice and, and create the change that I want to see. And I think um, through my experiences running as a candidate, I'm even more empowered to do that. Yeah. I see more spaces um, available to me and open to me for my voice to be included. So, um, you know, I'm taking advantage of that um, that elevated awareness of who I am to to use that space to call attention to some of these really important issues of our time. Yeah, well, that's that's absolutely wonderful, and I look forward to seeing what you do and hearing and and, and watching what you're involved with, and you know, working with you as we move forward with things. Um, is there anything that we haven't asked that you think is a really kind of really important thing that we mention to our listeners? Um, when when people think about this this um, cause of reconciliation, and again that place of fear, and I don't know where to start. Um, the metaphor I like to present is this. Um, so going back to Marie Sinclair saying we've we've laid before you a mountain. This all this information, all this testimony, you know, five point five million documents. It's a lot. Yes. Um, we have to climb it together as Canadians. Um, I think about it this way again we have a we have an opportunity every single day every conversation we have every tweet we send out to um to say something important yeah. and each of those is a drop in the bucket and if each of those are doing 
one of those things an hour, one of those things a day, all these drops are being dropped in the bucket. And each of those create a ripple. And ripples connecting with other ripples are creating waves. Yes. And over time, waves actually change a landscape. And and that's what we're talking about, this long-term goal. But it starts with those little drops. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been fascinating um, listening to you. And as a new Canadian, I've, you know, it's a lot of this is all very, very new to me and new information. So thank you for the enlightenment that I've received today. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, as I said before, I look forward to working with you in the future. Great. Thank you for having me. It's Katrina and Aneta in the studio. Aneta, that was a great interview with Miranda Jimmy. Yeah, amazing woman. Yeah, I especially liked how she talked about this idea of the project that she worked on and from a perspective of inclusion. And it was really woven through the fabric of that project. I just felt like it was really integrated right into the work itself. And I really liked how she described the criteria that she used um, and how it was just so qualitative in nature. I thought that was really... Really in depth. Yeah, very much so. And um, one of the things that, uh, while that project really resonated with me, one of the other things that did also was when she talked about culture, art, and heritage all being one thing, and how um, from a colonialist perspective, we tend to see them as separate. And um, her real passion for us to stop doing that and for Canada really to embrace them as they are all part of the same voice and that that's how the Indigenous community see them and I thought that was really powerful and really interesting and very similar to how the Indigenous community in Australia view it as well. So I actually thought that was really amazing and very, very powerful. I really like the language that she used to describe that because that really resonated with me as well. And it reminded me of uh, another story that I heard recently. It was a historian, Neil Ferguson. And he was talking about the difference between seeing history through an archive versus seeing history through personal papers. And I really kind of got that same vibe from what Miranda was saying about it's not just the artifacts and the artwork, it's human remains, it's how these things were obtained and, and they were collected. That all weaves into the story yeah very much very very much so and um and and also it kind of weaves into that story of the indigenous voice and and them continuously having to present their voice and have a voice you know as an indigenous community in Canada and um you know I think that is a really interesting challenge that they have as an indigenous community and how where they go with that and what they do with that. And um, I I like the way she kind of talked about, you know, the rest of us need to come to the table as well. Um, So I thought it was a great interview. I thought she was fantastic and I really enjoyed talking to her about what she was doing. And I really look forward to seeing where she's going to go in the future with all of this. This show was created by executive producer Annette Latham, Producer Katrina Ingram, technical producer Paul Johnston, research assistant Rael Lockwood, theme music by Emily DeFour, and cover art by Constanza Pasher. Artful Conversations is a production of McEwen University, all rights reserved.